All right, good afternoon and welcome to the uh, August 9th, 2021 Major Mondays webinar series. Today we're going to be talking about the carrier's rights under Kelly, Burns, and Bissell in New York. Hello, there I am. All right, so this, as usual, this is our live question and answer webinar, so feel free to post your questions. Uh, and if there are any questions at the end, we'll get to them. Um, so I did want to start off with a little bit of a public service announcement here because it's been popping up uh, very frequently recently. Um, so many of you have probably heard about the settlement structure, a third, a third, a third. Uh, it's what every attorney on earth is going to suggest to you you do with your Section 29 or Section 40 reimbursement. Uh, I wanted to be very clear about something. This is not required in either New York or New Jersey. Uh, and when I say not required, I mean they'll even try and tell you it's customary. This is how it's always worked. This is how it's always going to work. We do this all the time. You'll hear it all. Uh, no, that's just if you have a lien greater than a third of the settlement, uh, you should be seeking reimbursement of that lien. Uh, in fact, we do have a substantial amount of leverage uh, if our subrogation rights are adequately preserved under Section 40F or Section 29.2. Uh, and to sort of elaborate that, on that a bit, um, both statutes give us the right to compromise or commence uh, a third-party action directly with the third-party defendant or their insurance carrier, provided we've served the requisite notice, right? So uh, if we do that under Section 29.2 or Section 40F, we can sort of step in and settle the case. Um, so claimant says, I'm going to walk away from the settlement. I'm not getting enough money. Okay, no problem. I mean, I'm sure they'll be happy to pay me exactly what my lien is versus paying you $50,000 more than that to settle the case, and I only get two-thirds. Um, or they might say, oh, we're going to file for a compromise order under Section 29.5 and compel the settlement over your objection. And we're going to quash the lien and we're going to, you know, have it equitably apportioned and all that other stuff. Okay, go for it. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to read your motion when you file it because uh, there are all kinds of cases out there that say very simply, the court cannot arbitrarily modify the lien amount. Uh, they are without jurisdiction or power to do anything other than enforce the rights under Section 29 and Kelly. Um, so do not fall for the bluster or the anger or the puffery. Uh, don't fall for any of it. Uh, there's no such thing as a third, a third, a third. Uh, you should be demanding your full reimbursement. If you want to avoid the hassle of dealing with motions or subrogating directly or any of that stuff, you can consider a modest lien waiver. But um, spoiler alert, no third-party attorney is going to prosecute a case to the point of settlement and then walk away because you wouldn't waive your lien. So uh, just keep in mind the leverage that you have. I wanted to float that out there before we uh, dove in here. All right, let's start off with Kelly versus State Insurance Fund, everyone's favorite. Uh, so we'll go over what this case stands for and then towards the end of the webinar, we'll go over how it applies practically. Uh, so Kelly says that the reasonable and necessary expenditures are to be equitably apportioned between the carrier and the claimant. What does this give us? This gives us our cost of litigation percentage calculation. That's attorney's fees and costs and disbursements divided over the gross settlement. Uh, so it's typically gonna end up being a little more than a third because most attorney fee arrangements are gonna be for a third. Uh, and then even to just file to get an index number in New York is gonna run you $210. Uh, so costs in excess of 1,000 or 1,500, uh, especially if litigation was ever commenced, are very common. Uh, so Kelly says that the expenses are apportioned in accordance with the total benefit derived by the carrier. Uh, so what is it, what exactly is the total benefit? Uh, that's our present lien reimbursement 
end our relief from the obligation of future payments. And like I said, we'll see towards the end of the webinar exactly how that all shakes out. So continuing with Kelly, um, the net effect of our sub-row rights here is there's gonna be approximately a one-third reduction to the lien and then a possible further reduction for one-third of the present value of our future workers' compensation obligation that was extinguished. Uh, apportionment typically is negotiated between the parties. Um, you know, you'll, uh, like I just mentioned, try and negotiate your lien reimbursement amount and how the costs are to be allocated. Um, but without an agreement, the court does have the power to set it. Um, this is where the distinction between speculative and not speculative future benefits begins, which again, we'll be getting into in a little bit. Um, side note here, practitioner's note, expert note, uh, always ask for a proposed closing statement and a final closing statement. Uh, they should have a very good idea, when I say they, the third party attorney, they should have a very good idea of what their uh, anticipated costs are if they're already at the point of settlement. There might be some debt transcript fees or some meds that come in the door at the very end, um, but they should be able to get pretty darn close. So you get one to work off of when you prepare your consent, uh, and then, uh, in your consent, and we uh, did another presentation on uh, how to do a good consent, uh, you state that it's contingent upon provision of the finalized closing statement that gets filed uh, with the Office of Court Administration, which is something they're required to do. Um, so you'll finally have confirmation of those numbers and the net moving to the claimant. Uh, you'll have the initial you worked off of and you'll be able to make sure everything's on the up and up after your consent is given. So always ask for it before and after. All right, Burns versus Variali. So uh, Burns stands for the proposition that a non-schedule loss of use uh, permanent partial disability classification, AKA in New York, the LWEC classification, uh, is too speculative because it may or may not continue for the rest of the claimant's life and can change based on the claimant's actual earnings. So when we talk about an LWEC classification, benefits are going to be suspended if the claimant returns to work uh, at the same or greater pay. Uh, there may be reduced earnings if the claimant returns to work for, uh, you know, slightly less pay. Um, so this award can be quite speculative in as much as it may be suspended at any point in time. So the court draws a deliberate distinction between uh, LWEC type PPD and uh, SLU, uh, permanent total disability or death benefits. The latter three are not speculative. That's schedule loss of use. Permanent total disability and death benefits are not considered speculative. Uh, so the Burns Court comes up with this method for determining our Kelly share on a continuing basis after the third party settlement happens. So let's continue with Burns here. Uh, this is why you're going to see in many consent agreements, uh, claimant and carrier reserve rights per Burns. Uh, that's essentially just your, a reservation of your future offset. Uh, and it's a reservation on the claimant side as to their entitlement for you to pay at the cost of litigation rate. Um, so the court required the claimant to show entitlement to benefits as they accrue in the Burns case. Uh, and the court found that the board has jurisdiction uh, to determine the reimbursement to the claimant uh, for the share of litigation costs on an ongoing basis. So how does that shake out practically? So the claimant is permitted to petition the board periodically to determine the entitlement to apportionment of litigation expenses. Uh, the Court of Appeals found that the trial court can fashion the means of apportioning costs and monitoring carrier payments. Uh, the net effect to our subrogation rights, you're going to use the Kelly calculation we talked about earlier for the cost of litigation uh, to determine your ongoing payments at the Burns rate. 
when the claimant gets the net settlement from the third party claim, uh, whenever they come away with any money, essentially. Uh, note here, even with our Burns obligation, our share of litigation expenses is never more than the claimant's actual litigation costs. Uh, and I wanna be very clear about what exactly we're saying there. So if you end up reducing the lien by say you've paid way more in comp than the third party settlement, if you end up reducing your lien by more than what the claimant's actual litigation costs are, so that's attorney's fees plus costs and disbursements, if the reduction to your lien reimbursement is greater than that number, you have satisfied your uh, Burns obligation at that point for your equitable share of litigation costs. If you think about it, why are we going to continue to pay at the one third rate when we've already paid essentially by the reduction to our lien for what the claimant's actual litigation costs were? So it's really important uh, at the time you consent to the third party settlement to look at what you've paid, look at what the lien reduction is and figure out whether ongoing burns payments are even a thing, if it's even something you have to be worried about. If it's not, uh, be very clear about that in the consent agreement. And we state that in the consent agreements we prepare uh, that the carriers, uh, the reduction to the carrier's lien reimbursement is already in excess of the claimant's actual cost of litigation. Therefore, the parties understand uh, that any future uh, offset rights are going to be applied on a dollar for dollar basis until the claimant's net settlement is fully offset. Uh, so if the lien reduction per Kelly plus the burns payments equals the claimant's actual cost of litigation, future offset rights are on a dollar for dollar basis. So just keep that in mind. Uh, burns obligation is not absolute if you've already satisfied your share of the litigation expenses. All right, matter of Stenson. Uh, I know this one's not in the title of the webinar, but it sort of just uh, insists on itself and sticks itself into our discussion here. Uh, so third department decisions from 2011 and 2012 uh, is matter of Stenson. They're 2012 after remand back to the trial court. Uh, I put the citations there in case you're interested. Uh, so what this case says is Burns applies whether or not the claimant has been classified with a permanent partial disability. Uh, and I'm sure you know where this is going. It basically means you can assert it against temporary disability, uh, assert your offset rights. Uh, so Stenson holds that in the consent to settlement, the carrier can waive some or all of its lien recovery to be relieved of obligation to pay future expenses. Um, so that's exactly what we were just talking about before. Say uh, the reduction to your lien is actually not greater uh, than the claimant's actual cost of litigation you can choose in the present to waive additional portions of your reimbursement to satisfy uh, the claimant's cost of litigation and then apply it on a dollar for dollar basis going forward. Uh, if it's a matter of a few thousand dollars, that's a very popular option because it's just much, much neater. Uh, and many claimants are going to go for it without much question because hey, it's an extra couple grand in their pocket today. Um, if you're going to do this, you have to plainly and unambiguously, and I'm quoting that language because it's directly from the decision, uh, state so in the consent, and I also tagged on there, or else waived. Um, that's from a whole line of cases. Uh, one of them is Brisson versus County of Onondaga. Uh, but I think everyone um, participating in this uh, webinar knows that if you don't explicitly reserve future credit and offset rights in your consent letter, they're gone. Uh, so be very careful about doing that. Uh, so in voluntary consent cases, the board does have jurisdiction to determine whether our credit is adequately preserved under section 29.4 and the amount of the credit. In other words, if they ask us for a consent, we prepare a consent agreement, we give it. 
the board does have jurisdiction to interpret how that shakes out. Uh, where the third party recovery is pursuant to a court judgment or a jury verdict, uh, and it's not us consenting to a settlement, jurisdiction for um, affixing all of our rights is going to stay with the trial court. All right, let's dive into Bissell. So uh, this one addressed medical expenses. So, so far we've talked about SLU, uh, we've talked about uh, non-SLU PPD, permanent total disability uh, and death benefits. So um, Bissell talks about medical. So liability for future medical expenses is too speculative <clears throat> to be subject to the Kelly calculation. There's that word again, speculative versus non-speculative future benefits. Uh, Bissell says the payment of the carrier's share of litigation costs waits until the expenses are actually paid by the claimant. Uh, and if you want an idea of how this is gonna be applied practically, uh, I threw in a citation here to uh, a board panel decision, matter of Franciscan health management. Uh, this is another one we cite to in our consent agreements. Uh, claimant is going to pay out of pocket and then submit a claim for reimbursement to the board afterwards. Uh, and if you think back to what Burns actually stands for, that's all on the up and up. That's how it's supposed to work. Uh, note that this can be a C8.1B objection. In other words, you have a third party settlement credit uh, and all of a sudden you get a bill from the provider, uh, you can object on the grounds that you are applying a third party settlement credit. Um, so what actually happens on the facts in Bissell uh, is it ends up being a Kelly and Burns hybrid. Uh, if you have patience for legalese, I recommend reading through the decision uh, just because it's a really helpful illustration of how this all ties together. Um, <clears throat> the carrier had to pay a lump sum upfront to extinguish its liability for future indemnity payments but the cost of litigation on future medicals would be paid as they were incurred. Uh, now note, you can agree to extinguish liability for future meds with a lump sum Kelly payment. Again, this is what we just talked about in matter of Stenson, if plainly and unambiguously stated in the consent to settlement. Uh, one thing to always keep in the back of your mind, the fee schedule still applies. Do not pay one third, uh, say you have a Burns obligation, uh, do not pay one-third of what the gross amount of the bill is. Pay one-third of what the fee schedule amount is. That's what your actual liability would have been under the law. All right, let's get into some math. Um, try to keep these very simple, and we'll go through them pretty quickly. So let's pretend we got a gross third-party settlement of $100,000. Um, with regard to the title, COL calculation is cost of litigation calculation. Uh, and in this uh, example, we're gonna assume there's no future benefits at all. Um, section 29 lien at 25K, comprising medical and indemnity. We have attorney's fees of 33,000, costs and disbursements of 1,000, uh, 34,000 divided by the gross settlement of $100,000 gets us to 34%. We take 34% out of our lien of 25,000, which is $8,500, and boom, our reimbursement is $16,500. Uh, the claimant's net in that instance would be $49,500, and that is the amount of our future credit. And the way I got to that number was just $100,000 minus attorney's fee, minus costs and disbursements, minus our calculated lien reimbursement of $16,500. All right, speculative future benefits. Yes, I am saving the worst one for last. Uh, so uh, these are your Burns payments, speculative future benefits. So using the same numbers from the prior example, claimants net is 49.5, we're responsible for 34% of the cost of litigation uh, of future benefits. Let's say the claimant has a 25% LWEC uh, classified, 
uh, and it's equivalent to 250 weeks at $300 per week, right? Uh, so we have to reimburse the claimant for 34% of ongoing payments, which is $102 per week. Uh, when does our holiday period actually end? Uh, after 165 weeks. And you get you figure that amount out by dividing by the gross amount of the payments, not the amount of the payments you're avoiding, which would have been uh, $298 or so. It's the gross amount of, uh, of the payments you're supposed to be making under the LWAC classification. Uh, and that gets us to 165 weeks, meaning that for the latter uh, weeks under that 250 week award, uh, we would be paying what's called deficiency compensation. All right, Kelly extinguishment, and here's where it gets rough. All right, uh, so let's say the claimant has a permanent total disability of 900 per week. I'm just making these numbers up. Uh, you can actually uh, arrive at a, um, a much uh, neater and much more accurate number by looking at the claimant's uh, at life expectancy uh, and figuring out what the lifetime benefits would be on the permanent total disability. Let's just say the present value of those benefits is determined to be $600,000. Let's say our lien is half of that, 300,000. Uh, the third party settlement is only 500,000 and there's 10,000 in costs and an attorney's fee of 163,333.33. So uh, same calculation we did under Kelly. Uh, we're doing the attorney's fee plus the 10,000 in costs and disbursements, takes us to 34.67% as our cost litigation rate. So how do we calculate the total benefit to us? Well, thanks to Kelly, uh, that's the nine hundred thousand. That's $900,000 total, which is our lien of $300,000 plus the present value of the future benefits, which you remember we just said was $600,000 arbitrarily. So the total benefit to us, quote unquote benefit, is $900,000. Our equitable share, 34.67% of $900,000, is $312,030. Uh, uh, so if we subtract our equitable share from our gross lien, this is the next step of the calculation. $300,000 lien minus $312,30 equals negative $12,030. Okay, we just ended up with a negative number. What actually happens here? So we don't get any reimbursement and we're actually exposed for paying fresh money of $12,030 uh, and then we actually take a complete holiday from any future benefits uh, to the extent of the claimant's net from the third-party settlement. So how do we calculate that? Well, 500,000 minus the cost of litigation plus the amount we're paying in fresh money now uh, is 338,696.67. So when is deficiency comp gonna kick in? Well, about after seven years, 338,696.67 cents over the weekly PTD payments of $900 per week, takes us to 376.33 weeks. Uh, so, you know, divide by 52, that takes us to a little over seven years. All right, uh, we're gonna just briefly talk about um, one of my least favorite cases, uh, and then we'll just go into expert tips and wrap it up here. So, uh, Terra Nova versus Lear Construction Co, uh, 2017 case. Uh, per Kelly and Burns, you guys might remember from earlier in the presentation, SLU is uh, not speculative. Uh, and with an SLU award, the carrier gets credit for prior indemnity paid. When you have a schedule loss to use for the arm or the leg or the hand, for instance, um, you get to take a credit for the prior indemnity paid. So you might be asking yourself, well, wait a minute, if I'm carrying a third party credit forward and I also get a credit for the indemnity I already paid, isn't that a double credit? Uh, and this case sort of deals with that. 
So Terranova ends up requiring an additional cost of litigation assessment against the carrier's credit. Uh, so say, for instance, the cost of litigation rate is exactly a third, and say uh, the claimant's net settlement from the third-party action was $30,000, uh, a third would get knocked off of $30,000, and we'd only get to apply $20,000 against the SLU. So we still get a credit for the prior indemnity, which is the good news, um, but our third-party settlement credit is reduced by the cost of litigation percentage before it gets applied against the SLU balance, and I threw in bold here, unless otherwise agreed, uh, you can agree to whatever you want in that third-party settlement consent agreement, and that's uh, what Matter of Stenson actually stands for. So again, if you want to settle your cost of, lit uh, cost of litigation obligation up front and then take a complete holiday, you can specify that, and you can also specify in your consent agreement, including as against schedule loss of use awards. In other words, bypassing your additional Burns obligation under Ter Terra Nova by agreeing to something else at the time of the third-party settlement. All right, do's and don'ts, part one, AKA expert tips. Do ask for a closing statement. Do not take their word for it. Uh, I have to be very clear about that. Many times they're going to be ballparking uh, their costs and disbursements. This is why we ask for the closing statement because this is the thing they're gonna show the claimant. This is the thing they're gonna file with the um, New York State Courts Office of Court Administration. Uh, we wanna see an itemized list of those costs and disbursements. A lot of times, more times than you would think, they actually get it wrong. Um, so don't just take their word for it. Do draft an explicit and thorough consent agreement. Um, don't reserve rights per burns if you're asserting a dollar for dollar offset. And I have to be very clear about that point as well. If you think about it logistically, those two are totally inconsistent. If you say we're taking a complete holiday and both, party reserves right, both parties reserve rights per burns, you've just agreed to pay at the cost of litigation rate despite saying I'm taking a complete holiday. The board's gonna look at that um, because remember they have jurisdiction over a voluntary consent agreement to interpret it at least. And they're gonna say, well, those two are inconsistent. Therefore it's ambiguous. Therefore Burns applies. You're not gonna get your dollar for dollar offset if you make that mistake. Uh, do properly calculate your lien reduction per Kelly, but do not settle for a third, a third, a third. We talked about that at the outset. Do make use of the voluntary consent agreement if the settlement is fair. Um, but don't be vague, unclear, or ambiguous. Remember what we talked about earlier is if you're able to satisfy your Burns obligation in the present to take a dollar for dollar offset going forward, spell that out explicitly. Um, do assert your credit and offset rights as of the issuance of the consent agreement, particularly in global settlements. And um, there's a case that says we can do exactly that, Williams versus Lloyd Gunther Elevator Service Incorporated. Um, don't fail to specify when the offset rights are applied. So when you issue your third-party settlement consent agreement, if you don't say when the offset rights are going to be applied, uh, chances are they're going to be applied as of the date the claimant receives the third-party settlement proceeds, which means you're gonna be liable for paying everything in the interim. Um, so you can assert it as of the date of issuance of your consent agreement before the third-party settlement proceeds ever enter the picture and it's just way neater and way cleaner and way easier to track. So make sure to do that. All right, do's and don'ts part two, and then we're wrapping up here. Um, so do make the consent agreement contingent upon the terms of the agreement. Don't fail to reserve the right to revoke if a final settlement differs. So there's actually a couple of cases out there on this very topic. Remember I said before, um, ask for the final closing statement. 
So you can require that in your third-party settlement consent agreement. And you can say, uh, our consent to settlement is expressly contingent upon being provided with a copy of the third-party uh, or of the closing statement filed with the Office of Court Administration within 90 days. If, and if we don't get it, our consent is revoked or we reserve the right to modify it. Uh, if that happens and you don't get that closing statement within 90 days, uh, you can say you're, you never validly granted your consent to settle, uh, and then they have two options at that point to claim it. They can try and get a non-pro-tunk motion to approve it retroactively uh, in civil court, or they waive the right to future workers' comp benefits. Um, so I would, if we make everything in the consent letter contingent upon uh, total compliance with the terms that we set for it. Um, <clears throat> do lay out all of the calculations of your reimbursement, your offset, the claimant's net, the cost of litigation, lay it out all explicitly. Uh, don't forget to confirm the numbers in the closing statement filed with the Office of Court Administration after the settlement concludes. Um, here's another insider tip. You can also make your consent to settlement expressly contingent upon the numbers remaining the same. Um, so that's uh, another little uh, tool you can uh, hang on to. Um, when I say lay it out explicitly, I see way too many consent letters that say carrier reserves rights per burns uh, and, you know, we'll take a third knockoff to the lien. Uh, not good enough. That's just so ambiguous. You're just asking for the board uh, to take advantage of your failure to be specific. Uh, do make sure to account for the impact of Article 51 and New York Insurance Law uh, and Section 291A. There's a couple of webinars out there on that topic already. Uh, if you have any questions about it, feel free to contact me directly. Don't assume that the 50K carve-out applies in every motor vehicle accident for the full $50,000. Uh, and again, we've talked in prior webinars about some of the exceptions to that. Uh, leverage your Section 292 subrogation rights and the uh, requirement for your consent. We talked about that earlier. Uh, don't fall for puffery or intimidation tactics. They're going to try and knock down your lien. Don't fall for it. And honestly, you can say, I'll just go settle directly um, if I'm not going to get what I want because I served this Section 292 notice. And finally, uh, do monitor the third-party action and assert your lien. Don't sit back and wait. Um, don't take a very passive role in this and wait for the money to show up. Keep an eye on what's going on. Keep an eye on if anyone's going to try and deny your reimbursement rights so you can get counsel and intervene if you have to. All righty. Uh, I know that was a long haul and that was a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, jargon. So let's dive into the questions and uh, see if we have any here. It looks like, hmm. Sorry, I'm trying to uh, trying to see what the question is here. Things all like bunched up on me. Um, all right, it's for completing the SSI work uh, worksheet. Uh, yeah, for some reason I can't expand it. Um, if you want, you can email me the question. Sorry about that. Uh, just email it to cmajor at loisllc.com uh, and I'll get back to you within a half hour. Um, sorry, I wish I could. I don't know why the thing's all like bunched up here, but I can't expand it. I can't read it. I apologize. Um, but yeah, cmajor at loisllc.com, send it over. I'll get you an answer within a half hour. Sorry about that. Um, I don't see any other questions other than that, unless, again, I can't see everything. Um, but 
yeah, sorry. If you have any additional questions, uh, just feel free to email me or you can give me a call. All right, guys, uh, thank you for attending uh, and hopefully we'll see you next month for uh, the next Major Mondays webinar.